Welcome everyone to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. Week 2 of the Australian Open is upon us. We have some exciting matches to go over as always. It always delivers. This sport always delivers. Nadal, Kyrgios, we got it in the fourth round. I'll be breaking down that match. Nadal wins in four sets. Uh, Medvedev, someone who uh, I predicted to go to the finals, but also predicted that he might have trouble with Stan. Well, he did have trouble with Stan. Vavrinka threw 6-2 in the fifth set. I'll go over that match, um, and then I'll also make sure to uh, at least make mention of every round of 16 match, but with the time difference... I cannot watch every match at uh, at this major, unfortunately. There will be voids in the grand scheme of my analysis, but at least by the end, I get to watch everything. It is it is sometimes a struggle with this tournament, but uh, I, we uh, we do our best. We do our best. The thumbnail is particularly beautiful. I think. Look at that. That's that's a cool thumbnail. It's very uh, symmetrical. It is Rafa Nadal for those listening on podcast platforms, which, by the way, there was some comments. If you don't know, Monday Match Analysis is on iTunes. It is on Spotify. I would very much appreciate it if you would leave a rating and a review. That is always very much appreciated, um, and it helps the uh, it helps more people find my show. So that's always great you go on iTunes and you can do that. But uh, I am on your favorite podcasting platform, whatever that may be. I will also preview the quarterfinal matches. I don't know how much depth I will go into. And then if there's spare time, which I said there might not be, but I will get into comments if there's extra time. A little iffy on that. Uh, but I want to start with the Nadal match. Most of the things I'll be going over for the Nadal match, uh, they are not very visual. It's going to be mostly me talking. Then there's uh, a Vavrinka, uh, for Vavrinka Medvedev, there is something that I am going to flash up on the screen, but I will be referring to my notes here on the Nadal Kyrgios match, uh, which was a really interesting match because I think each set had its own story. I love matches like that. A lot of the time, every time you wipe the slate clean, you, you get something new. And I think we had that in this match. Um, I'll start with the fact that I think Nadal traditionally has been a slow starter recently in his career. If, if he's challenged, if there's a point in the match where he's not at its best, at his best, it's usually the very beginning of the match. And that was not the case here. I think Nadal came out really, really strong. Um, he picked on Kyrgios' forehand return, which is a major, major point. He continued to go to Nick's forehand return the entire match. And this is a technical hole in, in Nick's game. And it's a credit to Nadal that he's able to go against the grain because he likes to serve it out wide on the ad side, he, um, especially. But against Kyrgios, he makes the adjustment. He Nadal normally serves to the righty backhand. Against Kyrgios, he knows to serve it to his forehand. And the first thing I want to outline here, it was a it was a big time factor in the first set. Then it became a factor really in the in the fourth set um, and mostly throughout the match. I don't think Kyrgios was ever able to overcome this deficiency. And I have a screenshot here from the 
fourth set of Kyrgios, uh, what will ultimately be a missed forehand return. This one is a quasi body serve. It's on the it's on the ad side, and Nadal hits a slice serve down the tee, but also kind of close to Kyrgios's body. And I think that this is the best illustration of the technical flaw that Kyrgios has in his forehand return. Um, I'm going to try to describe this as well as I can. Normally, I'm going over tactics, not technique, but but I want to make a technical point here. Kyrgios catches his forehand return too late. He lets the ball travel too deep, and there's a couple reasons why that's bad. When a ball—so this is true on the return of serve and on volleys. And I think a chip return in uh, uh, technically is pretty similar to a volley. The technique is pretty similar, chipping a return— and hitting a volley. And the, the one thing that those two shots have in common is the ball is coming really, really fast. There's not a lot of time. And because of that, you try to limit your backswing and you try to take the shortest route possible to the ball. If the ball is coming by, uh, is coming fast at my forehand side and I don't have time to take a backswing, the shortest path to the ball is if I cock my right, my, my right wrist and then I'm already there, right? If I have my hands out in front of me and I cock my right wrist right here, I'm already where I need to be with my racket face out in front. That is the shortest route to the ball. So if you could imagine this, instead of instead of taking that backswing and letting it come back here uh, towards, let's say, uh, imagine parallel with the right ear on a righty, forehand chip return instead of letting the ball get deep into the hitting zone towards the parallel with the shoulder parallel with the ear you want to catch it out in front a couple reasons for that uh, one it's easier to watch the ball the ball oops i hit my mic the um if the ball travels past your your eye right it gets into your peripheral vision it's a little bit harder to follow the ball it's more likely you're not going to make clean contact the second reason i think this is the most important reason is you're more likely to mistime it because inherently if um it takes more time even though it feels like you're letting the ball travel further at your buying time it really takes more time to get the racket head in the right position and you're more likely to be so late mistime it and mishit it completely the third reason is you're naturally less stable. It's not you're not as strong, right? So if I were to if I were to push a door open, right? I'm a lot stronger in front, out in front than if I let's say try to um like if I try to punch a punching bag. I want the punching bag in front of me. That's like catching a, a chip return out in front. If I stand with the punching bag right here and I try to hit it here, I'm not as stable. I'm not as strong. I don't have as much strength here, so I'm not as in control. So the the net net of this overall is that Kyrgios has a technical flaw with his forehand return. And Nadal took advantage of that throughout the match. I know I'm starting this by, by getting into the weeds, but I, I really think that this was massive throughout the match. 
And uh, I think the, the best way that Kyrgios can remedy it, besides trying to catch it out in front better, is to move back. But he refuses to move back. If he moves back, he'll buy himself more time, and he can take a, a bigger swing at the ball. That's what Nadal does. I wonder if, if Kyrgios uh, doesn't feel that he has enough power from the back. I don't think that's the case. I think it's more likely that either, one, he's just stubborn or not used to it or he doesn't practice it or the other possibility is that he doesn't really want to do the physical work that it takes to get back into the point uh, because when you start 10 feet behind the baseline uh, normally you play a more physical point you do more running now I I'm really not sure what it is I don't know why Kyrgios uh, insists on standing so far up on the baseline and using a block return that is not effective he's not good at it we talk so much about the decision-making of going to a block return instead of taking a big cut at the ball. We talk about that, especially with the one-handed backhands, uh, Tsitsipas and Shapovalov. But remember, there's, there's good block returns and there's bad block returns. And we'll get to this with Medvedev because it was a key in, uh, excuse me, Vavrinka because it was a key in the Medvedev match. Okay, moving on. That is uh, the forehand return. And uh, something that I think Nadal takes advantage of the entire time. Now, in the first set, I want to talk about the break of serve that Nadal gets. Because, again, he makes a, a very – he does some very smart things tactically to take advantage of Kyrgios's technical weaknesses. Uh, the game that Nadal breaks is 1-2, Kyrgios serving. And what's going what's gonna to do the trick is three backhand errors by Kyrgios. But the common theme here is it's Nadal not giving Kyrgios pace and making uh, making Nick try to generate with his backhand. That's not what his uh, that's not what his backhand that's not where his backhand is effective. He does not have a lot of racket head acceleration. He doesn't have a very long swing, and he really can't generate much off his backhand. So what Nadal was doing is kind of giving him junk ball, no pace to his backhand and daring Kyrgios to try to create off that side. And it's very uncomfortable for Nick to do that. He made three errors. That was the break. And again, Kyrgios did not return well enough in the first set and Nadal wins at 6-3. Um, it's also important to note that in the beginning of this match, and I, I think that really in the first three sets, Kyrgios wasn't winning many baseline rallies. I think even in the second set, which Kyrgios won 6-3, and I think he made some good adjustments here, which I'm about to talk about, Nadal flat-out dominated Kyrgios from the back, outgunned him completely. And the biggest thing with, with, with Kyrgios, I think, is uh, he, he was not flattening out his forehand enough. He was pretty passive, and Nadal was not passive at all. I mean, he was bullying Kyrgios around the court. Nick was playing all the defense here. And I think people think of, of Kyrgios as an offensive player, rightly so. He has, he has unbelievable offensive weapons at times. Great hands, at, uh, comes to the net, serves massive, and has a forehand which can be super effective generating offense. But it was not in this match for the, for the majority of the uh, beginning stages. Now things change. But in the beginning, I mean, Kyrgios is just rolling over his forehand. Too much topspin, not flattening it out, not hitting through the court. And Nadal is hitting through the court. 
he is flattening out his forehand, taking it down the line, aggressive, uh, hitting some great inside-out forehands, which he loves to flatten out that forehand in particular, which is good on this surface. I got to talk about the conditions at some point um, on this show. Well, you know, I think a good time to talk about it is right now um, because I think Kyrgios went almost two sets entirely without hitting a single winner from the baseline. The, when, when it has been nighttime at the Australian Open, it's been very, very slow. It's been cold. That's about to change. The forecast for Friday is going to be hot. I think 106 degrees Fahrenheit. Holy God. Uh, it's going to be hot. Now, I'll be interested to see how that changes the conditions. But so far, uh, I was wrong predicting this tournament with the, with the conditions. Now, I, I had no clue. I didn't really have anything to go off of. Neither, you know, No one did. But I basically assumed that the manufacturer of the hard courts, the, the Spanish company that put in the new hard courts, I assumed that it was going to play basically the same because that's what the officials said uh, they were going for. And it's actually the same type of surface. It's a you know blue, acrylic, hard court, same surface. It's playing different. It's not the same. The ball's not bouncing, but it's not skidding either. It's just slow. It's hard to hit through. Uh, it's not... You know, it, it might be medium speed, but it's not lively at all. And the ball's not bouncing. It's not taking topspin very well at all. And Nadal doesn't like that. But in this match, he did a good job flattening out the ball. Better than Kyrgios. But Kyrgios couldn't hit through Nadal. Nadal could hit through Kyrgios. All the winners in neutral baseline rallies were coming off Nadal's racket. Domination in baseline rallies for Nadal. Really through close to three sets. Uh, in the second set, Kyrgios is able to avoid the baseline rally. Wasn't playing him. And that's why he, he gets it done in the second set instead of the, the first. Nothing changes from the back. Nadal is still outplaying Kyrgios. He's on the offense. Nick is playing defense. He, he, he's just not creating off his forehand. But uh, Kyrgios starts to come to the net. He starts serve volleying and he starts using the drop shot. Kyrgios' drop shot is so good. It's such a weapon. And what was even bothering Nadal, forcing him to play further uh, in, uh, even in defensive situations, because Nadal was covering the drop shot at all times. I mean, Kyrgios' drop shot is, is probably underrated as a, as a real legitimate weapon. So he's coming to the net, and he's hitting drop shots. He's avoiding the baseline slugfest, which he was losing. And Kyrgios obviously has a really big serve, and one break is, is all it takes when he's being crafty with his drop shot and getting to the net. Uh, the break at in the second set is at 1-2. And this is a bad game from Nadal. Now keep in mind, what I said is still true. There's no offense coming off of Kyrgios' racket in a baseline rally. First point, Kyrgios defends, gets a forehand error with, with some good depth on a backhand cross court. Maybe a forced error, maybe an unforced error, kind of in the middle. Nadal expects to make it. 15 all, Nadal makes an easy forehand error off of a Kyrgios return. Easy, easy, unforced error. 30 all, Nadal, neutral ball, backhand error. 
30-40, Nadal goes to the net, and Kyrgios hits a squash forehand pass down the line with a, with a continental grip. It, it just hit the outside of the line. Again, a, a counterattack from Kyrgios. Kyrgios on the defensive. So four points, gets the break, not a single point on the offense for Kyrgios. Now, in the third set, I think um, nerves play the biggest factor. And possibly Kyrio starts to feel it physically. But Nadal loses some of the sting on, on his forehand. And Kyrgios loses his patient shot selection and, and starts, starts going for a lot on, and, and makes some curious decisions here. But he starts flattening out the serve. Um, the third set goes to a tiebreak. And at this point, Nadal has really lost the feel on his forehand, which is, which is really the opposite of, of, I think, what we've seen. I think in the past we've seen Nadal not have the feel for his forehand and get the feel for his forehand later, but it was the opposite. He makes... Um, one easy error, a forced error, a missed forehand return. Nadal's missing forehands. Kyrgios double faults at 5-all. Goes for a first serve on a second. I don't know why. Uh, then Nadal double faults after his service motion is disrupted. He stops in the middle. And with Nadal, uh, with his routine, ritual, OCD, whatever you want to call it, um, I think that affected him and Nadal double faults. At 6-all, Rafa comes through in the clutch, which he's done. He was not clutch in this match. He double-faulted under pressure in the fourth set as well and made some mistakes under pressure. But here at 6-all, nice forehand down the line by Nadal, wins him the point, and then Nick makes a forehand unforced error going for a lot on the forehand in the third set tiebreak. Um, and Nadal wins that 7-6. I'm a little bit cloudy on, on the fourth set because I, I, uh, I was disrupted here in this match. And I did go back and watch it. Um, oh, right, right, right. So Nadal serves for the match at 5-4 in the fourth set. And uh, Kyrgios at this point is physically exhausted, going hitting out on his shots. And Nadal, Nadal is a little bit limping to the finish line here, to, to just just a little bit. And he plays he plays a, a pretty good tiebreak in the fourth set. And really, Kyrgios is not returning well enough. And I think the forehand return from from Nick plays a really big role in the fourth set tiebreak. But Nadal also um, plays some nice points. Kyrgios misses a volley, I think, for a mini break. And Nadal comes up big, big in the clutch. So I think those are the major themes of the match. It was a, a really good win for Nadal, other than the fact that I think he, he didn't get better as the match progressed. And uh, he didn't play great under pressure. But other than that, um, a good match. A little long, a little physical for his liking. And he looked a little bit uncomfortable, I think, Um walking off the court through the tunnel for some reason. He looked like he might have been in a little bit pain a little bit of pain to me. I don't know if if it was kind of a grimace or 
it's just hard to tell, but he, he had a, an interesting facial expression on. His, his shoes were off. I, I'm not reading into it. Don't quote me that Nadal's injured. I just think he looked like he was in a little bit of discomfort. Maybe he wasn't. I'm not sure. Moving on to a surprising result, another uh, a more surprising result in the quarterfinal, I should say, which was Medvedev and Vavrinka. Um, I thought this was going to be tough. I didn't want to go too hard on saying that, oh, Vavrinka's a bad matchup for Medvedev because the head-to-head was too love Medvedev. Both were best of five. One at the U.S. Open and uh, I forget the other one. But they played twice in majors. Medvedev won both matches. So I, I was hesitant. But at the same time, I, this is a matchup where I do feel pretty strongly that it, it was on Vavrinka's racket at the U.S. Open. And he played atrocious. Couldn't make a ball. Just didn't make a ball. Like the first set, and Medvedev couldn't move in, in New York. I mean, he was injured. All Vavrinka needed to do was hit the ball on the court. And he would have won the first set. And he just couldn't do it. It was, a, it was a really bad match in my opinion. But when I think about this matchup, it seems like it should be a really good matchup for Vavrinka. And, and now we saw that. We saw that, uh, the advantages. One is the, the Vavrinka return. He takes all the pace off the ball. It's a block return. It's the model block return. He is great at it. He, he, he puts the ball on the court with great frequency. He normally puts the ball quite deep in the court, which is the only thing that makes it effective. And sometimes on the backhand, he pulls a fetter and keeps it quite low and uh, short, which is uh, definitely... Excuse me. Uncomfortable for a flat hitter like Medvedev. So I want to show you one example of this. And this persisted throughout the match. But I felt Medvedev was very uncomfortable in the midcourt. And very uncomfortable creating his own offense off of balls with not a lot of pace. So this is 2-5. Uh, and I mean, the, every single screenshot I'm about to show you in this clip. And I'll talk through it as well for uh, audio. Is from the same game. So this is off of these are all off first serve returns. So this is a first serve return. It's short in the court, and Medvedev is going to go to the slice backhand. He doesn't have a good slice backhand. Oh no, that excuse me, that's a drop shot. So Medvedev, look how short this is. He goes to a drop shot. It's not a very good one. Stan is there, and he's gonna lob Medvedev on this ball. You see him, he's there in plenty of time, and he wins the point. Now it's 15 love. Again. It's a no-pace return by Vavrinka. He retreats, prepares to play defense, and forces Medvedev to create everything off of this first forehand off the ground. He's just not that comfortable doing it. Misses this one long. And guess what? If it wasn't long, Stan was right there for the next forehand. This is just the kind of this is just a floating no-pace return. I know it's hard to tell on screenshots, but he makes uh, he makes Medvedev create all the pace. The most important thing on a shot like that is racket head acceleration. Medvedev doesn't have that much of that. Just just to give you some examples. Nadal does. Uh, Tsitsipas does. Team does. Those are all for... Rublev does. These are forehands that are great at generating their own pace. You can give them a floater... You can... Give them a floating ball that lands right on the baseline, and it doesn't matter. They're going to generate their own pace. Medvedev's not that guy 
So uh, Vavrinka gets back to neutral on these returns. 40 love, it's another short return. Medvedev goes to the slice. It's an underdeveloped shot, and that's long. So, and by the way, the fourth point was uh, a really good return by, by Stan that I don't blame Medvedev for playing back neutral. In the other three cases, Vavrinka hits returns that some of the elite players, I think Nadal, I think Federer, in particular, with how big their forehands are, would be able to attack and put Vavrinka on the run, make Vavrinka uncomfortable. And this is one area where Medvedev is not there yet. He does not generate from the midcourt, especially when he doesn't have pace to work with. Stan, throughout the match, was getting back to neutral very, very easily. And that was an issue for Stan. I mean, for Medvedev. I don't know why I keep confusing their names. Okay. Here's the second key. The backhand-to-backhand cross-court rally. Same reason why this is sometimes a tough, why Stan can be very tough on Novak Djokovic. Medvedev and Djokovic have backhands, cross-court backhands that are the most solid on tour. They're always deep. They never miss. They're so solid. And most righties, they just, they cannot be in a cross-court backhand rally with Djokovic or Medvedev and feel okay. Because the quality of shot is that where on the on most righty backhands, it's unattackable. And you're more likely to miss first. You're more likely to drop a ball short that can be attacked. In Djokovic's case, he can run around it. Or maybe he can change direction down the line. And you're just, you're very unlikely, most righties on tour are very unlikely to have any success backhand to backhand with Medvedev or Djokovic. Vavrinka is an exception. He can have success on that cross-court backhand pattern because he generates so much offense off his backhand wing. Medvedev has kind of this, he doesn't normally inject that much pace into the cross-court backhand. It's deep, it stays low. But Stan stays pretty far back. He has all the time in the world, and it just felt like he could tee off on the Medvedev cross-court backhand. He could. He was changing line beautifully and creating offense off of a shot that Medvedev is not used to his opponents creating offense off of. So there's a very big contrast here in how Medvedev is able to generate offense compared, or excuse me, oh my god, how Vavrinka is able to generate offense compared to Medvedev in certain positions. And that really bothered Daniil. For this reason, again, the conditions, they seemed slow here. It seemed like, seemed like uh, Daniil was having trouble hitting through the court. But Stan is so strong. He can hit through any court. It doesn't matter if it's Monte Carlo. It doesn't matter if it's Roland Garros. It doesn't matter if it's the U.S. Open. There's not a court in the world that Stan Wawrinka isn't strong enough to hit through. This is why I, I, don't, I don't see Medvedev as a clay court player at the moment. And I know some people argue with me because uh, about that because he's so consistent and he's so physical and he has great shot tolerance. Yeah, all those things are great on clay. I just don't see where the offense is coming from on a clay court. On a faster court, um, Medvedev is more apt to create offense. And by the way, if you give Medvedev pace, he can use it against you. He can change direction brilliantly. But um, 
on Vavrinka's return, there is no pace. And it was hard for Medvedev to play first strike tennis. Um, really good win by Vavrinka, who looked incredible. He looked so good. His forehand, his movement looks better than it was last year. He was serving well. and uh, I. But I think most of all, he looked like he was ready to play defense. And I'm not sure that was the case for most of last season. So he looked great. All right. Uh, let's get real quick remarks on the um, on the uh, other matches that were played in the round of 16. I just want to make sure I go over each. Um, I mention each. Tennis Sandgren beats Fabio Fanini. I have not seen Sandgren yet. I have not seen him in the tournament. I actually, no, I did watch him once. It, his first round. Who did he play in the first round? I did watch that one. But uh, I, I'm not really sure what's going on. It's such an impressive run. I'm, I'm incredibly, oh, I watched uh, his match against Berrettini. I, I'm very impressed, but I don't, I don't really know what's happening with him and why he's beating everyone, to be, to be completely honest. Uh, Fushevich and Federer. Federer has not looked steady. He has not looked consistent. He's playing aggressive. He's coming up with some brilliant tennis at times. But at this stage in the tournament, I think that Federer is showing some... Uh, he just didn't come out well in this match. And I just think it's a little bit late in the tournament for Federer to be doing that. He should kind of have his rhythm by now. And I also wonder if it's going to hurt him at all that... I don't know. Again, I think the conditions are a lot worse for him now than, than they were before. I, I do. Against Millman, Millman was taking massive cuts at the ball. And he was hitting a heavier ball than Federer. And Federer was having trouble hitting through the court. It, 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 looked like, it looked like when he played team at Indian Wells last year. And team was taking these these humongous cuts at the ball in slow conditions and w was just able to hit through the court a lot better than Federer. It's interesting. So um, I, I don't know how good you can feel right now if you're a Roger Federer fan, but it could change. Dominic Team completely overpowered Gael Monfils, who, who is looking a little bit slower to me. I don't want to be... I, I don't. I wouldn't make the claim. I'm not confident enough to make the claim that Monfils has lost a step. I got to see him a little bit more. It's just one match, but to the naked eye against Team, and I don't know if he was tired. Uh, it just looked to me that he was a little bit slower. But regardless of the fact, Team looked great, and he's going to get overpowered in that situation, uh, probably regardless. Vavrinka Medvedev was the other one. We've went. We went over that already. Um, Alexander Zverev is someone who we need to talk about. For the first time, Zverev is through to the quarterfinal without dropping a set. He beat Andre Rublev, who I had making the quarterfinals. Uh, he beat him in straight, 6-4, 6-4, 6-4. Those two are childhood friends, which was, uh, which was fun to see and a good story. But uh, a couple things. First, Zverev seems happy, seems like off the court things are great. I don't know how he was able to turn the, the page on the disaster that was the ATP Cup so quickly, but he's not double faulting. He is doing enough on uh, in the midcourt to punish short balls. He's putting enough pressure on, but at the same time, he's going to his bread and butter, and 
He can do a lot of similar things to Medvedev. And those games aren't compared a lot because their strokes don't look anything like each other. But I think they should be compared more often. Here's a guy who serves massive, but has the consistency of a little man, the defense and the counter-striking of a little man uh, at six foot six. So he gets the benefit of his height on the serve, but he his uh, he doesn't get the the regular kind of downfalls that you get. So with Rublev, keep this in mind, with Zverev's counter-striking, Rublev, he was exposed for his one-dimensionality. Zverev loves to be behind the baseline, using his opponent's pace against them. Loves to counter-strike. Loves to step into backhands and, and change, you know, change direction and turn defense into offense. That's what Zverev loves to do. Rublev was letting him do that by hitting every ball as hard as he could. And he did the same thing, Rublev, when he played Medvedev in, uh, I think it was Cincinnati, I want to say. But definitely over the American hardcourt summer, Rublev played Medvedev. And the same thing, he slugged every ball as hard as he could. You do not do that when you are playing a counterpuncher who loves to be behind the baseline playing, you know, long grinded out rallies and those two love pace rublev needs to learn sometimes to take a little bit off his ground strokes and to use the angle and the width of the court to get a guy like zverev or medvedev moving you know get them out of position get them moving in sometimes uh get them moving side to side also rublev doesn't have much of a transition game he needs to work on his transition game to the net um, his approach shots, and his volleys. Against a guy who's so talented defensively, I just think that Rublev had a lot of trouble finishing points because he wasn't attacking the right way, because he wasn't using any angle, and Zverev was, was seven feet back. When you're playing someone seven feet behind the baseline, you got to use angle, or you're not going to be able to hit it through them unless the court is lightning fast, and this court is not. So that's how, how that went, but... Credits Zverev, playing unbelievable tennis. Okay, I'm missing some, right? Raonic and Djokovic-Schwartzman. Those are the final two, I believe, yes. Um, Raonic has been unreal. Raonic and Zverev have been, to me, the two most surprising players in this tournament. He is ripping his forehand. He feels really good on the forehand. The serve is still there. That's no surprise. But um, I'm interested. I, I think his topspin backhand looks a lot better. It's not great. It'll never be great. It's not his shot. But when he needs it, it's been there. Or it was there against Marin Cilic in some really big moments. Got a break in the first set with a backhand return winner hitting over the ball. Uh, won the... Um, Won a really big point. Was it? Uh, I don't remember. Won a really big point in the third set with an open stance, topspin backhand down the line. I mean, th this is just not the kind of shot that we're used to seeing Raonic pull off. In fact, he uh, he was at a point in his career where he was almost slicing every backhand for a little while. And he's not quick enough. He's not good enough with his movement to really be slicing every backhand. He just can't make... He can't make up that time. He can't get away with that. Um, 
I'm wondering if there's a technical change on his backhand. The backswing looks a little bit shorter, but he's playing unbelievable. He gets Djokovic next. We'll we'll get to the quarterfinals in a moment. Djokovic beats Schwartzman 6-3, 6-4, 6-4. Didn't see the match. Not too surprised at the result. No one has looked better than Djokovic at the end of the day. Uh, Nadal and Federer haven't looked better than Djokovic. Um, And I think that's been pretty clear. The conditions... Turns out um, they, and I know this is hard to say because Djokovic has always loved the Australian Open, but these conditions might be, I mean, I think they they hurt Nadal and Federer a little bit more than the old conditions, which probably favored Roger Federer. I don't know if Nadal, Nadal didn't like him very much, but um, certainly Federer did. And this is a, this is a much less lively court. And I think it's harder to harder to play offensive tennis. But I think I think Djokovic loves a low bounce. His footwork tends to be a little bit sharper when the ball's not bouncing up. Okay, quarterfinal matchups. Let's throw them up on the screen here. There they are. Nadal and team. I originally picked Rafa Nadal. I think there are a couple things that Nadal could have the advantage here. He could have the advantage um, with his serve. His serve has been really good all tournament long. Uh, team, there, there's still probably a little bit of development to be done on the team return. But at the end of the day, I see this as really cl- tough to call. I see this as long, physical, perhaps five sets. And if I'm going there, I'm if gun to my head, I change my pick to Dominic team. Because I am a little bit concerned about how hard Nadal has had to work physically. It hasn't it, it hasn't exactly been easy for him. You know, he played really well against Pablo Carreno Busta and played a quick match there. But other than that, it, it hadn't really been easy for him. And uh, team is coming off a really breezy match against Gil Monfils. And I think if this goes deep, I think team is the fresher player. And we've seen that there's not enough between these two. Is Nadal is the better player when he's at his best right now, but there's not enough between these two where I think that Nadal can beat him quickly. And honestly, if this drags out, I just like Team to have a little bit more energy at the end. Vavrinka and Zverev is a super super interesting one, um, and I tend to lean. It's it's really hard. I think I'm going with Vavrinka. I'm not confident about this at all. I haven't thought about it that much, but I do think that Vavrinka, um, his level has convinced me. Not that Zverev's level hasn't been great. I just feel like Vavrinka is playing at all three levels right now. He's playing, you know, he's playing well at neutral. He's playing well. Uh, he's playing better defense than I saw at any point last year. And he's got more in the tank offensively than Zverev still. He's still better at the net than Alexander Zverev. He has a better transition game. And uh, I I tend to think that the way, and also the way that Stan um, is able to neutralize big servers like he did against Medvedev. I tend to think that Zverev doesn't get much as much as he'd like off of his first serve. Stan's also serving well. Just think Vavrinka, um, I think Vavrinka gets through this one. I'm uh, I'm not confident. Sandgren and Federer going with Federer, not going to overthink it. Don't have much to say about it. Uh, Federer should win. 
Raonic against Djokovic is your fourth and final quarterfinal match. Um, the head-to-head is 8-0. Djokovic hasn't lost to Raonic. It's not really surprising. Djokovic is a bad matchup for a Kevin Anderson or a Milos Raonic type who are, are used to dictating off their serve. Then they play Djokovic, they get less free points. They don't get to dictate as much, and they're not winning any neutral baseline rallies against Novak Djokovic, that's for sure. Uh, so I I favor Djokovic. Um, the only way that, that Djokovic could have trouble, the only credit, you know, that, that or the only thing that you might want to say is that Raonic probably has a chance to shrink the margins and take it to some tie breaks if Djokovic doesn't have a good read on his serve. That's what it all comes down to. We've seen matches where Djokovic has a great read on a big server. Think uh, Kevin Anderson, 2017 Wimbledon final. The guy all of a sudden isn't hitting any aces because Djokovic just has a great read, right? Think... Daniil Medvedev in the in Cincinnati last year. Djokovic had no read on the serve, didn't really know where it was going, wasn't reacting quickly to it, and Medvedev got tons of free points. See, it can it can go both ways. If Djokovic has a read on the Raonic serve, it's lights out, game over. If uh, if he does not, then Raonic has a chance to shrink the margins. But Djokovic is so solid in tiebreak. By the way, uh, Djokovic is serving really big too, the second serve. Um, and I just want to mention that, that that has uh, been a big factor. Uh, so we will see what happens. Looking forward to the quarterfinal matches. I, I think uh, content-wise, it'll be semifinal previews, and that'll give me a chance to uh, recap the quarterfinals. But it, that's, I think, what I'm going to go with. I will play it by year. I look forward to it. Enjoy the matches, everyone. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time.